This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. First, a story that, you know, we love to talk about crime and intrigue, don't we? Those stories, who doesn't love a good Dateline episode? But, you know, we don't typically learn about some of the covert operations behind major news stories until some years later, if we ever do. But a lot of times those backstories are even more interesting than the case itself. Well, Stephen Matelski lectures on organized crime at Queen's University and teaches criminal psychology at Mohawk College. He's just released a new book. It's called Undercover, Stories from the Underworld of Law Enforcement. And he joins us to talk about some of those stories this morning. Stephen, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, what made you want to write this? Well, I've always said my experience in policing as a sergeant, especially in the intelligence world, I've always said this type of work rarely garners the front pages of newspapers uh, or is on the six o'clock news or even the radio for that matter. And I wanted to take the readers, the general public, uh, into the driver's seat of these unbelievable covert stories from undercover operators, men and women in Canada and the United States who have infiltrated the most dangerous uh, uh, organized criminal groups that we've ever seen. Now, even the introduction to your story was so fascinating because you were talking about even training, like when police officers undergo training to become an undercover officer or to be an agent like that, that even that is some scary stuff. It really is. And, you know, I always use the analogy of acting because undercover work, not everybody has that innate ability to think quickly on their feet and act. And this is under the most extreme stressful conditions you can imagine, whether you're infiltrating a outlaw motorcycle gang or the mob. Uh, but the difference is this isn't a movie set. In undercover work, there's no way, nobody, there's no directors, there's nobody saying, cut, let's do it again. In this type of covert work, you have one chance to get it right and you have to really think quickly on their feet. So that undercover training, not everybody is, is cut out to do this kind of work. Mm-hmm. And it's really boils down to, you know, how... How quickly and how much can you adapt within milliseconds sometimes, you know, sometimes to save your own life in that situation? It really does come down to your acting abilities. Where did you gather all the stories from? Well, I'm a former undercover operator and handler myself, and we were kind of a tight-knit community. And I reached out to, and initially started to reach out to some of my friends who did that kind of work. And it just sort of grew from there. Once I established my credibility as a former undercover operator and then established my credibility as a writer now since I retired from policing, it really opened doors to other really great contacts, especially down into the United States. Um, and it just really grew from there. And they, uh, the, the people who are a part of my book, they really essentially are what makes undercover. They are the, the big leagues. In my introduction, I equate my own experiences to a hockey analogy of, you know, my experience is the minor leagues right. compared, compared to the big leagues of these, these men and women who, you know, came face to face with death yeah. on so many occasions during these undercover ops. Can you just tell me what your favorite story is that you collected? Really difficult to select, but I, I probably would say Right at the top of the list is a guy by the name of Dominic Polifone. He worked with the ATF. And if you haven't heard of this criminal, he is one of the most violent criminals in the history 
of criminology, Richard the Iceman Kuklinski. And in the 70s and 80s, he was a mafia hitman freelancer for all the five major mob, mob families in New York City. And he became not only a, a psychotic serial killer, but he would start killing for the mere pleasure of it and, and to make money. And they had this huge case in New Jersey around uh, the circumstantial case with the Iceman. And he killed people by any means. And he really started to use cyanide uh, right near the end of his criminal career. And he would literally spray people in the face. They would be dead within seconds. And he would steal their money and, and freeze their bodies and do what? all kinds of just grisly things to these people. So here's Dominic Polifrone. Uh, their last sort of resort was to get Dominic to infiltrate Kuklinski's criminal underworld. And he posed as a mobster. And it took him 18 months before he even got an introduction to Kuklinski. And then he spent five months working undercover with Kuklinski. And on the wires, Kuklinski's telling him how he killed and the types of methods and his, his modus operandi. And the investigators wondered, why, why is the Iceman divulging intimate details of his criminality? And the reason was the Iceman was caught on another wiretap conversation talking about how he was going to basically murder Dominic Polifone, the undercover agent. So they always say three people can keep a secret if two are dead. Well, that was Kuklinski. And every single moment, Polifone met with Kuklinski uh, to, to buy guns, to talk about murder. He was going to supply him with fake cyanide. Uh, Dominic Polifone had a loaded handgun in his leather coat pocket pointed at Kuklinski because at any moment, you know, he was expecting to get sprayed in the face with cyanide. So... <sighs> That you can't make that stuff of, up, Stephen. Like, that's crazy. It, that's the reason I wanted to write this book is because some of these people have, you might have heard their stories on the odd documentary. Some of these stories have never been told. So I wanted to really open the door and have people take a seat in, in a front row of what it would be like, you know, to almost put them in that experience, you know, in the undercover operator's shoes. And you, know. you can't make this stuff up. It, it really happened. And it's mind boggling that, you know, some of these operators want that far to risk their life to put. Really, the reason why they do it is to put these really, really dangerous offenders in prison. You know, Stephen, I sense a Netflix series here because I would watch that docuseries for sure. Are you amazed, though, when you looked at it, you thought, how have some of these stories never been told before? I really have been amazed. And, you know, the editing process was, was probably the most strenuous towards the end. But even when I was rereading these stories and the transcripts of interviews I had with all these operators, I really was still pinching myself because it was just sort of uh, this euphoric feeling. It brought that adrenaline-inducing rush that I used to have when I would do undercover operations or as a handler. Nowhere near what these men and women went through. But... Um, just vicariously, I really lived through their stories, and I could only, only imagine the stress and everything else that comes with that right. inducing type of work. Wow, Stephen, thanks so much for talking to us about it this morning. Oh, thanks so much, Stephen. I really appreciate you having me on. Well, have a good day. That's Stephen Matelski. He's a Queen's University lecturer on organized crime and criminal psychology professor at Mohawk College. This book is called Undercover, Stories from the Underworld of Law Enforcement, True Stories That Will Just Blow Your Mind. You think, how have I never heard about some of this stuff before? And you can find that now. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, the story that is dominating the news this morning and will throughout the day today is the news that Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, has died at the age of 99. Let's find out more now from our Global News European correspondent, Redmond Shannon. Good morning, Redmond. Good morning, Simi. So what do we know this morning about what happened? We don't know much more about the circumstances of his death. What we do know, of course, is that last month he had a heart procedure at a hospital in London, St. Bartholomew's Hospital here in London, and overall spent more than a month in hospital uh, before that and recuperating from that procedure. So at the age of 99, almost the age of 100, he was due to celebrate his 100th birthday on June 10th. Uh, He passed away this morning in Windsor. And at this point, I know it's obviously a state of shock, but we've heard some words from Prime Minister Boris Johnson about that. What do we know about what's going to happen over the next few days here? Yes, so the protocol for uh, a royal death of this magnitude um, will be that uh, flags across the country will fly at half-mast until the funeral takes place. And that funeral will take place at St. George's Chapel in Windsor, a relatively small funeral at the request of the Duke himself, who wanted uh, less fuss. And uh, the uh, circumstances that we're in with the pandemic perhaps required that anyway, but it's something that he did want in any case. And uh, the palace is asking that members of the public do not go to Windsor for the funeral um, because of the pandemic and the the uh, situation that we're in. But uh, it will be a relatively small affair and he will be buried uh, in Windsor as well. So uh, none of the um, none of the uh, none of what happens between now and his funeral will really take place in London, but it will be focused on Windsor because that's where he passed away. That's where the funeral will take place and that's where he will be buried. Yeah, I think a lot of people would have expected Redmond a very large funeral, right? A very large outpouring for people. Uh, It just seems so fitting for him and the kind of person he was that he was saying, nope, I don't want any of that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, it goes along with the character who we believe that he, that he was, you know, no nonsense. Um, you know, sometimes a little bit too no nonsense. He was known for being perhaps on PC at points over the years, but gregarious and likable by all accounts. Um, but someone who really wasn't up for a lot of the pomp that went to, along with the royal family but someone who embraced the duties that went along with the royal family uh, looking at the numbers here it's quite remarkable since you know since he he became a a prince and and uh, well was, was of course born a prince but be, became uh, a prince in the in the british royal family married queen elizabeth in 1947 he's carried out carried out more than 22,000 royal engagements amazing uh, up until 2017, when uh, his old age uh, meant that he had to step away for for that reason. You mentioned something interesting there, though, that a lot of people perhaps do not realize, is that he spent most of his life in the British royal family, but actually was born into the Greek royal family. Yes, born into the Greek royal family, but of uh, primarily Danish descent. So as many of us know, the the royal families of Europe... uh, So connected. um, There's a lot of links. Um, And of course, Prince Philip and the Queen were in fact third cousins, um, directly descended from Queen Victoria, both of them. And uh, that's quite common in European royal families. Um, But he was born Prince Andrew of Greece and Denmark. 
and then relinquished those titles uh, when he became the Duke of Edinburgh when he married the Queen in, in 1947. So, yes, a, a, a Dane, a Germanic Dane, <laughs> who's a prince of Greece, who, who then eventually uh, sort of spent most of his life as, as the Duke of uh, Edinburgh. Amazing history there. Redmond, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. Bye. Redmond Shannon, Global News European correspondent, talking about the death of Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, this morning at the age of 99. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about our personal finances. I know that can be kind of uncomfortable. In fact, it probably makes some of us uncomfortable right now just thinking about that, right? It's hard to measure the exact impact the pandemic is having, but we do know it's gotten a lot rougher for a lot of people out there. The MNP Consumer Debt Index is one metric that we can take a look at, and they've just released their findings for the most recent quarter. And here's one of the scary things they found. Half of British Columbians are just $200 a month away from potential insolvency. Let's break down some of these numbers now with MNP Licensed Insolvency Trustee Linda Paul. Good morning, Linda. Good morning, Simi. So what exactly does that mean? Can you break that number down for us? Sure. Um, What it's telling us is that British Columbians right now do not have a lot of wiggle room in their budget. So after they pay all their normal monthly living expenses and they meet their debt obligations each month, they don't have a lot of money left over for any unexpected expenses. And when I say they're making their debt payments each month, really they're just making those minimum payments. So they're not actually paying down the principal at all. So they're just kind of maintaining their debt each month. And so it it would only take like a $200 addition of something for people to get into trouble? Exactly. They're that close to the edge. And what we've also found is that 27% of British Columbians right now are already insolvent. So we've been conducting this survey each quarter since February 2016. And this is is an all-time high um, in the last five years that we've been doing this. Um, survey last March pre-pandemic, what we saw was 18% of British Columbians already being insolvent. So that's quite a dramatic jump, 9% from last year to where we are now. Yeah, that is a huge jump there. So do you think it is the pandemic in particular that has contributed to this? Because from what you say there, it also sounds like we had this problem before. Yes, this is not a unique problem, but it definitely is getting worse. The pandemic has not improved a lot of people's finances. Some people have been able to save money and stay home and not spend as much, but they're already carrying debt before the pandemic hit. So, And what we're seeing now is that um, in response to having debt, um, 27% of British Columbians say that they have taken on more debt to pay bills. 21% are using savings to pay their bills. 18% are looking to credit cards to help them pay their bills. 7% are using a line of credit. 2% are taking out bank loans. And then there's about 3% of British Columbians that are deferring mortgage payments just to make ends meet right now. That would be still, right? Because I know in the beginning, uh, a lot of lenders were very flexible on that issue. But has that flexibility stayed or do you think those supports are ending? Those supports are ending. So the government has been incredible in there in providing relief or assistance to Canadians over this uh, last year, and banks have been forgiving as well. But we're not seeing the same level of forgiveness that we did a year ago. So in talking to British Columbians, 
um, going forward, when we ask them how they plan to make ends meet in the next year, what we're hearing is that 25% are saying that they are planning on taking more debt on, including high interest options like credit cards or payday loans to make ends meet. So it doesn't look like or sound like it's getting better for people then? It's putting British Columbians in a very vulnerable, vulnerable, pardon me, position right now. So that any unexpected expense could be the tipping point. Well, Linda, what happens then if interest rates start to creep up a little, even a little bit? If interest rates rise, we're going to see even more people experiencing financial difficulty. Um, So at Depending on the extent of someone's debt, there are some solutions that they can turn to to help them deal with that. Um, So budgeting, refinancing, liquidating assets, consolidating are are the options that people think of initially. But really what they should be doing is is seeking professional advice at at this time. Right, because do you feel like, I think a lot of people felt like this is only going to be a couple months and I can get through it, but now it's a year and it's much more serious. It is, that's exactly right. So if, if you are experiencing difficulty and you speak to a licensed insolvency trustee, we're able to tell you, at M&P we offer a free consultation. So there's no um, harm in talking to someone that has the skill set to help you navigate these difficult times. And I think what we've all learned from 2020 is that it's okay to ask for help. Well, hopefully people do. Linda, thank you for your time on that. Thank you. Linda Paul, licensed insolvency trustee with MNP, talking about their latest survey, which found that half of the British Columbians they talk to are just $200 a month away from not being able to pay their bills. And a lot of those supports that credit card companies and you know banks had been giving to people are slowly kind of being rolled back now. Uh, so if interest rates go up, I think a lot of people would be in trouble for that. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, how bad is the COVID-19 situation out there right now in Canada? Ontario just moments ago reporting 4,227 cases in a 24-hour period. That is a huge increase. They were at like 900, 1,000 just like a week or so ago. That's where they're at now. They've got some big concerns. And that's one of the reasons why we're being told over and over and over again, don't travel right now, even though technically there aren't any laws in place that prevent people from traveling outside of their community. But over on parts of Vancouver Island and some of the other islands, uh, there's a very big awareness or growing awareness, I think, from businesses that they're seeing people who shouldn't really be traveling right now. And so some businesses are taking matters into their own hands on that front. Gail Noonan is the owner of Books on Main on Main Island, and she joins us to talk about what she is seeing firsthand. Gail, thank you for being here. Well, good morning, Simi, and are, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for talking about this. I think it's so important. What are you seeing? Are, are people just too, too many visitors coming? Um, uh, the island was, was flooded with people over the long weekend and uh, during the, the school breaks as well. There were an awful lot of people visiting the island, and it was a bit disconcerting for us. Um, while we do like to welcome people to the islands, we do know that this is just not the right time. So, and even though we know we're not supposed to be doing that, right? So did did people have an awareness of that, Gail, or they, were they just treating it like any other holiday? 
Well, I would say most people were very respectful coming in the store, but there were uh, everybody wore their masks. I they were very responsive. If I held up my hand and said, "No, you can't come in right now," um, I would explain that uh, you need to keep your distance. And and again, people were very attentive. But what I found endlessly surprising were the number of people that came in and said, "Well, I, I've just never been to the Gulf Islands before." And what? I, yes, really. Uh, I've never been to Maine. This is my first time to Maine. And I, I was just floored. But at the same time, you feel this obligation to be the good host. And, you know, people would ask, what should you be doing? And instead of saying, go home, you know, I would, <laughs> right. I would say, you know, I'd get out the map and say, here's this park to go to and that park and uh, and it, it, there was just a real cognitive disconnect for me that... Um, you didn't people, want to be doing this. You didn't want no. to be providing travel advice to people. And, and no. You know, normally, yes. I, you know, I'm happy to... to it's, it's a lovely place to be, but really the, the level of sort of general understanding at this time should be, no, we don't travel. This is not the time to go explore new places. So what are you doing in response to this? Well, what I did was I just decided to close the doors. I realized, I mean, I have a bookstore, and bookstores really are places where you come in and browse. Exactly. And uh, you don't want to just zip in, pick something up, and zip out again. I, 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 I can order, I can do the sort of equivalent of takeout service, but not really. Most people want to come in and, and look on the shelves, and 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 it and it's part of an experience. You know, it's kind of part of the entertainment of coming coming to a place is just take your time and and. So a lot of people come in, they don't even buy anything, and that's fine, too. But um, it just made me extremely nervous to to have people coming in the store, and then, you know, a local person would come in and pick something up and bring it to the till, and, and then another person would come in the store, and I'd have to say, no, no, hold on. Oh, I'm just joining my bubble. No, I'm sorry. The... <laughs> Your bubble, uh, it doesn't include me or the other, you know, local person in the store. And uh, so I, trying to uh, do this multitasking, policing, helping someone find a book, helping someone purchase a book, I thought, you know, for the next three weeks, and uh, I can close the store. Uh, because the island is going to be vaccinated as a community starting the middle of next week. And it's just important to me that let's just keep this community as safe as possible. And, you know, so if visitors insist on coming to the island, then if they stay outside, you know, or if they're cycling around or visiting the parks, I think that's the safest alternative, even though really... Of course, they shouldn't. They shouldn't be here to begin with. Well, they sh- you shouldn't be having to be put in this position, Gail. But um, good on you for doing that, and thank you for joining us this morning to talk about it. Well, thank you for your interest, and best of luck. Best oh, of luck in the you. business. And- Thank you. You take care. I love a good bookstore. That's Gail Noonan, owner of Books on Main, who is voluntarily closing her store for at least three weeks because she said just too many visitors, too many people who don't get the rules right now. This is Mornings with Simi. 
We've heard a lot about concerns of Surrey teachers and what's going on with COVID-19, but teacher unions throughout the Fraser Health region have now all signed a letter calling on health officials to take even more action to prevent virus transmission in schools. Now, more aggressive health measures were introduced by the province over the past week, but these groups feel that they still don't go far enough in light of the continued increase in daily case figures and the continued concern over the potential for spread in our schools. So let's talk to the president of the Abbotsford Teachers Union this morning, Jennifer Brooks. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning. So what is the message that you really want to get through to the provincial government? Uh, I think the message that we really want to get through is that we need further proactive measures taken now to address uh, the overwhelming increase in, in COVID-19 numbers, especially with the uh, in news of the variants being so much more transmissible. Um, it's not, I mean, I'm so happy that Surrey has uh, been, va- is experiencing vaccinations and is, and is getting that protection, but we need to be looked at as a region as a whole. Yeah, what has it been like for you in Abbotsford? In Abbotsford, our numbers have been, again, you know, mirroring what we're seeing in community transmissions and and community numbers. Um, It has been increasing. We've seen isolations. We've seen um, COVID positive 19 cases, of course. We've seen classes have to move into self-isolation. One of the concerns I have here in Abbotsford is that um, for, for my members, the Abbotsford teachers members, we have about 1,500 to 1,600 members, but over half of them no longer live in Abbotsford. They have moved to other communities within the Fraser Valley. So when you look at community transmissions in our Fraser Valley communities, you have to realize half of my members are traveling back and forth to those communities daily. So when transmission rates go up in the community significantly, they are, of course, going to have a direct impact in our schools. And and what are the teachers hearing from parents too? Like, is there a lot of compliance with the measures, do you think? I think people are doing the best they can at this point. Um, But I think that people are anxious. They're scared. Um, You know, it's very alarming when you see the numbers so high so quickly. um, And there's very few people. We have not had a single school that has not been impacted in some manner by COVID, whether it's a self-isolation or an exposure um, or, or a class that's had to move into online working. Um, and and in that, that, ang- that anxiety just builds the more the numbers uh, are published that are higher and higher. Yeah, do you feel like maybe, you know, Surrey did get a lot of discussion because of the high number of cases there? And in the meantime, you were thinking, hey, over here, we've got issues too. <laughs> Yeah, but admittedly, Surrey is a much larger district than us, so I do appreciate that. And um, and they've always, you know, when you look at the trends, they've had, you know, significant numbers um, all along. Uh, but what I can see happening as, as the numbers in the community are rising, you're seeing that trickle effect throughout the Fraser Valley. And what we'd like to see is, let's look at health authorities as, groups, not just individual communities, but let's look at the Fraser Health Authority and maybe we need a different approach here as opposed to the health authority in in the northern BC regions. Um, I think we need to have a more regionalized approach um, to really combat where the hotspots are. And it might look different throughout the province, but but I think we need to start moving to that model. Okay, so then your message is that if whatever you're doing for Surrey should apply throughout the Fraser Health region. Uh, yeah, I think we should address our hotspot issues and really try to get a, a control of our COVID-19 numbers. 
All right. So that you sent out a letter uh, on that. Any response to that, Jennifer? Uh, so far, nothing <laughs> that I'm aware of. Um, but hopefully, I mean, it's only been a short amount of time, and hopefully, um, you know, a response will come or or some considerations, and uh, and that we can continue to work. We all want the same thing here. We're all on the same team. We all want the same health and safety for our, our parents, our families, our kids, our teachers. Uh, we all just want to be healthy and avoid getting COVID. And uh, so I think coming from the same playing field is a good start. Uh, we just need more discussion and, and some positive movements in the right direction. All right. Well, best of luck with that. Jennifer, thanks for your time. Thanks so much. That is Jennifer Brooks, president of the Abbotsford Teachers Union. We've heard an awful lot about things that are going on in Surrey and other districts. But Abbotsford is saying, hey, listen, a lot of our teachers live in Surrey and other places in Fraser Health. Therefore, we have a a big concern about kind of the movement there. They would like to see the entire Fraser Health region be treated as one kind of teacher district like what you're seeing in Surrey. They said, listen, if Surrey teachers have those concerns, we have those concerns too. This is Mornings with Simi. So the jobs picture for BC in the month of March would be to say it's held steady. Uh, We were at 6.9% with the unemployment rate. That's the same as the month of February. And for the businesses who were hit with the new health restrictions as well, there should be some help on the way. Let's talk about that with Ravi Kalan now, the Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Simi. Okay, so tell me about this announcement then. What kind of support can businesses expect? So yesterday we announced a $50 million grant program that can support businesses up to $10,000. And it's targeted to businesses uh, that were affected directly by the circuit breaker that was announced by Dr. Henry last week. So uh, restaurants, uh, bars, uh, breweries, wineries, uh, those uh, gyms, those that were um, impacted by the health order uh, can now apply to receive up to $10,000 and, and they can use the money for uh, whatever they think is the best for their business uh, at this time. Okay, now I'm concerned about how many hoops this is going to take for businesses to jump through because that has been an issue. Yeah, there, there's no hoops uh, and uh, big credit goes to uh, the many associations that represent uh, restaurants and uh, and wineries and breweries across the province. Uh, they work closely with us on this. It's a very streamlined process. Uh, the, the site will be launched next week. In fact, if businesses want to go on to the Small Business Grant Program website now, they can submit their email and we'll notify them of the details once the page is up. But essentially, Sammy, all they need to submit are three things. One, uh, a valid business license or liquor license, so we can confirm that they're a BC business. Uh, they can they need to submit how many employees they have, and and this is important because businesses that opened up during the pandemic can apply for this money. Uh, and so that's important for those businesses. They just submit how many employees they have uh, uh, t- at the time of the circuit breaker. Businesses that were open prior to the pandemic. Uh, can submit how many employees they had before the pandemic started so they can maximize the dollars uh, that they're eligible for. And and lastly, um, deposit information, uh, where their bank account is so that we can deposit money into their bank. Okay, so I understand this money came from the, the jobs, the other program, right, that wasn't fully being used? Correct. We have a $345 million fund that we announced last year, of course, during a pandemic, you don't know how great the need will be and where the need will be. And so we've been adjusting the program as, as the pandemic changes and as the needs change. 
Wasn't one of the criticisms of that other program, though, was that the need was there, but too many businesses were just having trouble navigating the paperwork or red tape to require to get that help? Well, that's a criticism maybe that someone, uh, some people may have raised, but December 21st, when I became the minister, I met with the business associations and said, what do we need to make this program more inclusive? We accepted all their changes at that time. Uh, and then we monitored the program for a couple of months. We saw a considerable uptake uh, at that time. And then we also made additional changes to the program uh, in March. Uh, and we've seen uh, of over $120 million of that program go out and thousands of applications have come in, especially during this time uh, with the additional health measures that have come in. Okay, so is that program still up and running then? That program is still up and running. Businesses that have applied in that program and received the grant do not need to reapply. Uh, we will proactively reach out to them to see if they have a need and, uh, and, and ensure that they get the additional dollars. Businesses that applied that didn't uh, or haven't been notified if they're approved or not, they also don't need to reapply. We'll also be proactively reaching out to them as well. Okay, so is this something that you foresee going on for quite some time? I know we, we call this the circuit breaker and it's supposed to be three weeks, but we don't see any signs of things slowing down. Well, I, I don't have a crystal ball on this, Simi, uh, and you know, I have complete faith in uh, Dr. Henry and the uh, medical professionals that are uh, making decisions around this. Uh, as you know, Simi, that uh, the decisions on uh, what closes, when it closes, are made by them. Uh, and that's, I think, the, the beautiful thing about living in Canada, so that we can have professionals telling us uh, what the best uh, circuit breakers are and, and how to manage the pandemic. And I support the decision Dr. Henry makes 100%. Okay, so for the businesses that might, this kind of perks their ears, do they have to have been impacted by these current health restrictions? Uh, the uh, businesses that apply for the circuit breaker have to be directly impacted by the circuit breaker. Uh, and, and businesses that have been uh, impacted by the pandemic overall, of course, have the small business grant program uh, to apply for. And, and Simi, you know, we're fortunate in BC. We have the highest per capita support for people and businesses from across the country. And that's reflected, I think, in the job numbers that we saw today, uh, which shows that uh, BC is the first major province to uh, have job numbers higher than we did at the pre-pandemic level. So I know tough uh, months are coming ahead with the new measures, but, uh, you know, we're going to make it through this. Okay, so what is the website then for people? The, the website is uh, gov.bc.ca uh, and it's slash uh, small business recovery. And they can, search, they can Google search small business recovery grant on, uh, uh, through Google or they can contact any of their local MLA offices to get more information. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Simi. That's Ravi Kailan, the Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation, talking about supports for businesses that were impacted by the latest health restrictions, the circuit breaker restrictions. Uh, this program should help them. You heard the details there. You can check online to get more on that. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, I know I'm thinking about gardening and spring and planting, especially with the weather forecast for next week. So I thought, well, we must talk to one of our favorite people for that. Joining us now is Carson Arthur, outdoor design and lifestyle expert. Good morning, Carson. Good morning. I miss you. I, I just want to get that too. out. I feel like I haven't seen you in ages. <laughs> you know, here's a funny story for you. I digress. But um, I was thinking about you yesterday because I was buying potato sets at a local nursery store here. And I... I 
texted my producer and I said, Hey, you know what? We should really get Carson on because I have questions about these potato sets that I just bought. And he goes, how did you know? We've already got him booked for tomorrow. So it was like great minds thinking alike on this one. So how, what is new in your world? I am. First of all, I'm so excited. You're buying potato sets. Yay. Look at you. Uh, I am gardening. This year has been absolutely incredible. More and more people across Canada, um, experienced gardeners, but also first-timers than ever before. They're going for it, and I love it. I'm going for it, too, because I saw potato bags somewhere online, and I thought, well, if I have potato bags, I can grow potatoes. So that's my grand-new experiment for this year. Is there anything I need to know before I get started with potatoes? So there's a little trick with potato bags, and they don't often explain it very well, but when you put your potatoes in, only add about four inches of soil at first and roll, roll the bag down so that you know, some sunlight can get to those new shoots. And every time those shoots grow six inches, add four more inches of soil. So you're, you're kind of adding layers of soil as your plant grows and keep rolling the bag up. That way, what happens is every time you add that layer of soil, you're going to get more potatoes growing sideways out of the plant. So you actually increase how many potatoes you'll get over the year. Okay, so that's awesome. That's exactly what I plan on doing. I'm already planning on giving away potatoes. But I also found that they're very popular right now because seed sets, trying to buy them online was quite difficult. Yeah, this is another year. We had it last year uh, and this year even more so. Seed companies, uh, vegetable supply companies all across Canada, even North America are saying they're out. They just can't supply Um, What's going to be interesting, too, is we're going to see shortages in other products for the garden that you may not expect. Now, one of them is going to be soil, bagged garden soil. We're going to have shortages across the country in that. What? Oh, I'm not looking forward to that. I got to get going on this already. And We're also talking about grass seed because is this a time of year when people should be thinking about their lawns? What should they be doing? Yeah, as long as your nighttime temperature is consistently above uh, 10 degrees, and I know a lot of areas where you are, it is, um, you can start top dressing, adding fertilizer, reseeding, doing all that good stuff. The one thing I'm going to point out is anybody who's got chafer beetle damage or any of those lawns that are completely devastated, you really need to think about moving towards fescue-based grass seed. It's going to be the only solution for you because the grubs don't like the endophytes, which are naturally occurring in the roots of the fescue. So they leave those ones alone and they move to the neighbor's yard. Okay, so then that's no more using really like the Kentucky blue kind of grass? Yeah, we got to get away from Kentucky blue. And it's sad because visually it's the nicest, but all of these bugs that are moving into our neighborhoods feast on that Kentucky blue. And because the roots are so shallow, when they eat the roots, you can basically lift the whole lawn off as if you're rolling a carpet. And and we don't want that. That's why we've got to get to more fescue-based grasses. Okay, so that's good. What about fertilizing? Fertilizing, a lot of people are moving towards organic fertilizers. And I love this. So you're seeing a lot more organic-style fertilizers in the marketplace, made from uh, sterilized chicken manure, sheep manure, uh, and even kelp and uh, fish meal. The reason why organic is so much better for the lawn is it's slower. By nature, it is a slower release. It doesn't get into the grasses faster, but it doesn't create any of the um, the algae blooms or any of the contamination that we're seeing year after year after year of chemical use in fertilizers actually causing. So organic is much safer, and the best part is it's very hard to screw it up. You can screw up chemical fertilizers. You can burn out your lawn. Not always about more is a good thing. When you go organic, it's very difficult to actually burn your grass. Right, but is there a downside? 
Uh, the only downside is, again, it's not as fast. So sometimes when you're feeding a plant that's really unhappy or right. it's not healthy, a chemical fertilizer will get into it much faster, whereas organic is a very slow process. Okay, so at my yard, we switched to drip irrigation about five or so years ago. Let's talk some watering mm-hmm. systems here. What is the way to go? Yeah, drip irrigation is fantastic. The other thing that we're really seeing right now is that your um, the big sprinklers with the overhead droplets the evaporation rate is so much higher than ever. So we don't want to actually go that route. You want to keep the water droplets low. So you know those sprinklers that go, they do the little dance? Sound of my childhood, those yeah. Are, there you go. Those ones are better because they create larger water droplets, which evaporate slower. So more water actually gets to the roots of the grass. Okay. I never even thought about that. All right. Okay. Uh, let's talk about um, yard tools here. Like I always, every year I see the displays and I want to buy some yard tools, but what do I really need? Well, the thing that was very interesting last year is because more and more people are actually now at home, we see a different landscape maintenance company. So they're not working the same way they were before because before everybody would be at work and now their work is at home. So they're able to look after their yards themselves. So there was a huge push in tools. And that was great. But we started seeing people running out. And the one thing I always tell people is stick with one line of tools. So this last year, I moved to Craftsman. And the reason why if you stick with one line of tools, the battery is interchangeable amongst all the tools. And it's so important that we get to a a more environmentally friendly method of actually creating energy for our tools. And the battery packs, the lithium, have come such a long way that you can actually have confidence knowing that, you know, you're, you're going to run your tool for half an hour, switch the battery with one of the other ones, and just keep going to get the job done. So when you make your decision, pick one line that you're happy with and get all your tools in that same brand because it's going to be much better for you in the long run. I like that. I like that. Okay, so I'm thinking now about planting. Is it still is it too early for me to do this? Should I still wait another week or so? Yeah, I'm going to say just hold off a little bit longer. There are some things that love cold. So I planted peas the other day and radishes. They're all great. Even spinach, go for it. But some of the tender perennials like tomatoes and peppers and even squash and cucumber, you really want to hold off just a little bit longer. We need those nighttime temperatures to be, you know, north of 10 degrees. So 10, 12, 15 degrees consistently at night. That's when those plants are going to be happier. And even though you think you're doing a good thing, as soon as they get cold, it actually slows down their growth. So you can set them back. So Mm. it's better just to be patient, wait for summer or wait for those good weather, and off you go. I'm so impatient right now because I want to get going. And now you're telling me that I'm going to have a soil shortage. Yeah, and it's, it's the weirdest thing. It's not the soil that the suppliers can't get. It's the bags. What? Yeah. Yeah, they can't get the plastic to make the bags and they can't get the containers for the fertilizers. And all of those types of things are actually, most of them are generated overseas, not here. And it's going to be a real shortage. So stock up when you can. Okay, I'm going to. So my last question then, when it comes to planting and everything I'm going to be doing, can I just buy one kind of soil for this? Uh, You can. The thing that I always tell people though, (laughs) but there's a but. You heard the but in there, I heard the but. Yes, I did. (laughs) So bigger plants like broccoli, cauliflower, like the big plants that actually have a lot of weight, need a dense soil to root into to, sell, to support them. They need something a little thicker, like a triple mix. But when you're starting out small with your little seeds, you actually want a lighter soil. 
So I always tell people, start with a bit of a light soil, like a plant starter soil, and then move to the heavy triple mix later. Once the plants are more established, that triple mix is great for all of your plants, but it's hard to get your little seeds to grow in the triple mix from the beginning. Okay, so constantly be thinking about this. Don't just think I plant them once and then it's done. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. It's just like sourdough. It's just like making kombucha. <laughs> you start with your living environment, which is your yeast or your, you know, your, your baby starter set, and you're going to continue to feed it just like you would your soil. And if you think that way, then you're going to be successful. Okay, we're going to have to have you back on in a couple of weeks so I could talk more about, I also have shallot sets, so I've got lots of questions, Carson. So we'll have to have you back on in a couple of weeks, okay? I'm so there for you anytime. <laughs> Thank you, Carson. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. That's Carson Arthur, outdoor design and lifestyle expert. You've probably seen him on HGTV, of course, and he's always great about answering your questions. So we'll have him back on in a couple of weeks, and then I'll get everybody to call in as well, and he can answer questions for you because we're so close to planting time. I could tell, too, by the nursery I was at yesterday thinking people are just raring to go out there.